Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today, cerebral venous thrombosis, a must, must know diagnosis for patients you're working up for atypical headaches. And I could have no better guest to discuss this topic than Casey Albin, neurointensivist at Emory. On Twitter, she is on fire with neurocritical care tutorials. She is now joining the MCRIT team, and uh, you're going to love this interview. Let's get right into it. Why don't we start off where I always start off? We'll start at the beginning. Who are you Great. and what do you do? So my name is Casey Albin. I am an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at Emory. I'm in the ICU, 100% clinical. So it's a big, it's a huge hospital, 40 neuro, dedicated yep, neuro yep. ICU beds. That sounds like an amazing job. It's awesome. Today we're going to talk about cerebral venous thrombosis. It goes by a lot of names. We'll get to that. But you seem to have a certain joy in this disease, obviously not at the expense of our patients, but it, it's an academic interest. Is that fair? That's totally fair. It's a, it's Why both. do you like this disease? I think, ooh, that's a tough question. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this really ranges in terms of what patients present with. Most patients actually end up doing quite well if you can get them through their acute illness. So this is one of the, the things in neurocritical care where if we do a good job, we see patients actually go on to flourish after they've been admitted to our neuro ICU and sometimes for quite a long time. I think it's a really interesting blend of what I love so much about neurocritical care, which is it's a blend of neurology and then medicine. With all of this, you're doing a lot of investigation into the, the clotting pathology of a patient. And so often this is a multidisciplinary um, management. This involves neurosurgery at times and certainly uh, close collaboration with our neurosurgery colleagues. We get to the point where we might be doing really fancy things in terms of managing a patient's uh, intracranial hypertension. And so we can go down the path of really doing cooling, sedating, paralyzing, and doing all that fun stuff that we love to do for our patients who are really sick with intracranial hypertension. But mostly it's because patients do well. So if we do a good job, then usually this is something they can recover from. Got it. That's fantastic. Can you give us a brief description of what this actually is, just as a refresher for folks that haven't seen one of these for 20 years or ever? Yes. So I think actually that's incredibly important to think about the pathophysiology because the pathophysiology determines a lot about what the patients end up looking like. So the it's important to remember that in the brain, our arterial and venous systems are actually quite different than anywhere else in the body. So they don't run in parallel or they're not even in proximity and they don't supply and drain the same territory. And so when we talk about cerebral venous thrombosis, there's actually two subtypes that often get used interchangeably, but they're not quite the same thing. So we can think about cerebral vein thrombosis and venous sinus thrombosis. And often a patient will actually have both and colloquially they get interchanged and they get taken to mean the same thing. But what's actually going on within the brain is a little bit different. So the cerebral veins um, are draining the brain parenchyma, and there are two se uh, separate systems, the superficial and the deep system. And what's important here is that they're beneath the meninges. And they ultimately drain into the venous sinuses, which are interestingly venous channels that are between two layers of dura. And so we talk about these being the sagittal sinus, the transverse sinus, the straight sinus, the cavernous sinus, the things that you remember from neuro neurophysiology a long time ago as being those named venous channels in the brain. And so the reason I think that distinction matters is because 
when one of them is occluded, you actually get, you can get at least two sort of different pathophysiologies. So when a vein is occluded, remember the vein is actually in the brain parenchyma. So if a vein is occluded, then you get a buildup of pressure in front of that. So the forward flow is impeded. And as you can imagine, that creates some edema. Usually it's what we call vasogenic edema. If it gets to the point where there's the downstream occlusion is so high that you can't get forward flow and you're depriving the brain cells of oxygen, then you get what's called cytotoxic edema and cell death and injury. And that's your venous infarct when people turn, uh, you know, throw that term around. And if you get even more pressure, now you have pressure going into this dead tissue and that puts you at risk of intraparenchymal hemorrhage. So, so really the cerebral veins being included that can lead to this sort of focal brain parenchyma edema that then you get hemorrhage into. So on the flip side of that is you can get venous sinus occlusion and you can still see that sort of backup of flow and intraparenchymal hemorrhage with venous sinus occlusion. But what's even more important, I think, is when you have venous sinus occluded, uh, occlusion, what you're going to see is a rapid rise in intracranial So as you can imagine, if you have an obstruct, uh, obstruction to venous outflow, then you're getting stuff that is building up in the brain. And even more importantly, uh, if you can remember way back from neuroanatomy, is that there are the arachnoid granulations, which are in the venous sinuses. And that is the final place where the CSF is reabsorbed. So now not only do you have an uh, impedance of flow from the venous side, but you also have an occlusion of flow from the, like, the lack of reabsorption of CSF. So those two things together can really dramatically jack up your intracranial pressure, which is one of the most, not only what's causing kind of the clinical presentation, but what causes a lot of the downstream badness of this disease. That was perfect. In fact, I think that was better than I got when I had this taught for five minutes in med school. So I love it. That's great. <laughs> great. So let's change our lens just slightly. And so now that we know a little bit about the pathophysiology, what the emergency medicine people in the audience, as opposed to my intensivist friends will want to know is when do I actually need to go looking for this? And in emergency medicine, I, you might have or might not be exposed to this, Casey, but the paradigm is we look for things that are not just standard headaches when it's either much worse or of different character. And what we standardly work up in those cases is subarachnoid. And we have an entire paradigm. You could argue, do they need an LP? Not. That's an entire set of debates that I don't care about. But very rarely are people actually going searching for the CVT. And they might get lucky and find on the non-con or perhaps the CTA that some of us are doing for subarachnoid search. They might find it. But more importantly is when should we have it deliberately in mind? And I know you're going to tell me some patient categories that are at higher risk. But before we get to that, are there any generalities in presentation that make me say, this one I got to work up for CVT? Yeah, it's really hard. I think uh, of CVT as the like the great mimicker. And if you were to scan and look for a CVT on every patient who presented with a headache, lose our mind and be doing a lot of unnecessary workups. So I think the people who you have to think about in terms of symptom are the people who are coming in with you know no headache history, who have developed new onset headaches. Again, these are coming on slowly most of the time. These are not usually your thunderclap headaches, although unfortunately they also can be bad. 
but these are uh, usually taking some time to build up. And this, um, because it's causing an increase in intracranial pressure, a lot of these headaches are worse with laying flat and they can be worsened by Valsalva. And I think of those patients are patients who never had a headache history. And then all of a sudden come into the, uh, to the emergency department with pretty severe headaches, worse with laying flat, that's been building over a couple of days. It's not really responsive to analgesia. Those are the patients where I think you have to at least entertain this and have it cross your mind as, could this be a cerebral venous thrombosis? Do I need to do some imaging for this? And then the other patients are the ones that actually come in with a focal finding. So the ones that have probably a vein thrombosis and have parenchymal edema and that parenchymal edema and venous infarct are causing them to look like they've got new strokes, uh, like stroke-like syndrome. And those people are also going to buy themselves some neuroimaging just because they have new focal neurodeficits. Absolutely. But, and this is the crux question and you might tell me you don't have an answer and that would be perfectly acceptable. But when we're working up these focal neurodeficits or even a headache that's somewhat suspicious, we could work them up with our normal workup, for instance, a <laughs> non-con CT and then an MRI, MRA package. But there's something that has to make us jump to adding in specific venous imaging. Or maybe you'll tell me if you did a CT, CTA looking for the subarachnoid, you'll find this most of the time, even if you didn't do the CTV. So where do we stand on that? Let's say you, you didn't do the CTV, but you did both a non-con and a CT angio. How likely are you to pick this up? So those are going to be pretty sensitive. I think you will miss some for sure, uh, especially if there are cortical veins. The cortical veins are not going to be well seen on your sort of CT, CTA that you're going to get for your run-of-the-mill stroke workup. But for people who have large venous sinus thrombosis, you probably will get some sort of venous contamination of that CTA in which you'll be able to see the sinuses. And if you've got a good neuroradiologist, they should be paying attention to the fact that some of those sinuses are not pacifying in the, the venous phase that we see. So some shops will have, you get a CTA and then you also get the delays, which can be really helpful. And in the delays, you're looking more at the venous phase and you should see that there is the lack of contrast opacification in some of these larger sinuses. And so that's actually got a name that's called the empty delta sign. So if you have the sagittal sinus, which is the one that's most likely to be occluded, if that's occluded, you'll see a pacification around the blood clot there. And so what it looks like in your axial CT scan is that you've got this empty delta because the rest of the, you see some of the cortical veins threading into the sagittal sinus, but no filling of the sagittal sinus. So yes, you will catch a, a lot of this on uh, just a CT angiogram. Can't give you specific uh, sensitivity specificity numbers, but I think you should in a non-con and a CTA get enough of a picture that you can then kind of refine, you know, what you need to do next. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's backtrack. What patient groups are at higher risk for this? Yes. So I think in general, this is a young patient population that does not have traditional vascular risk factors that now comes in with a headache and new focal neurologic deficits. It does have a, a predominance of women. And that's probably because the most associated factor is going to be your oral contraceptive Pills. Again, I can't say that's necessarily a risk factor because there's not a great causality link because these are just not well studied enough. But certainly your peripartum women actually being uh, postpartum is the highest risk. Younger people, women, and then the women are any person who's got some sort of uh, genetic thrombophilia. 
with that, I think of these together are the people who have some sort of either acquired or intrinsic hypercoagulable state. So that's your cancer patients. That's your patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Those are the patients with nephrotic syndrome. Anything that kind of puts these patients at a higher category of risk of having systemic thrombo- thrombosis. Now they present with a new headache and it's worse with laying flat or they've got some new focal neurodeficits. Then I'm really thinking we probably need to go looking for at least exonerating that they don't have a, a venous sinus thrombosis. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. If you were already entertaining this diagnosis in your head, is there a uh, significant advantage to going MRI versus CTV, which is, which you had your choice and there was no other factors, like the patient had a contrast allergy, for instance, which of the two would you choose? Sure. So I think a lot depends on how quickly I want to diagnose this. Obviously, it's really fast to get a CTV. And a CTV is pretty sensitive. It's pretty specific. And if you can get that quickly, then that's great. On the flip side, an MRI is going to offer you a lot better uh, window into sort of what's happening in the parenchyma. So you're going to get a much better look at how much of their, whatever is going to show up as hypodense on the CT scan. That could be vasogenic edema. That could be cytotoxic edema. And I really want to know how much of that is actual stroke versus how much of that is just edema that we can get through and, and that's not dead tissue. And so MRI is going to do a much more beautiful job of uh, demonstrating what's actually going on in the brain itself. Probably the most sensitive, specific, and accurate diagnosis is actually if you get a MRI with gadolinium and you have your neuroradiology team is able to give you one of these high resolution volumetric 3D T1 sequences with contrast, that's probably going to be your best bet in terms of really looking at the neuroanatomy of the sinuses. And if you tack on an MRV with this, then you're going to get a nice flow study looking at the flow within the sinuses. And so I think if I had my pick, I would rather get an MRI with with gadolinium, with and without gadolinium, and probably tack on an MRV to that as well, just to get a look at the, the flow studies. Love it. Okay. Let's do two outliers, and then we'll get back to an already diagnosed CBT. Two outliers. Sure. For- First are, what is cavernous sinus venous thrombosis? Is it the same thing we're talking about? Do we have to deal with this differently? Explain. Yes. So yes and no. The, the pathophysiology is yes, you've got a promise that's in one of the venous sinuses of the brain. The reason that this is different is that it's most commonly associated with either head and neck infections and really severe ones at that. So really severe sinusitis, otitis media, orbital cellulitis. So it's much more likely to be a septic cerebral venous thrombosis than any other of the veins or sinuses being involved. And so it's rare. And I think it's one of the things that we don't worry all that much about because of how rare it is, but it is something to keep in mind if a patient has one of those head and neck, either infections or recently had surgery or has trauma involving the face and then develops ophthalmoplegia, meaning they can't move their eyes at all because of the involvement of the cranial nerves that run within the cavernous sinus, or just really significant periorbital edema. Mm. And it's treated the same way, um, and it just with the addition of usually antibiotics and pretty hefty antibiotics at that. But again, this is really rare and, and doesn't come up a whole lot, although it is something that you need to keep in mind for those head and neck infections. Got it. All right, perfect. The other outlier is COVID. And vaccination specifically. What do we need to know about that? And is it treated any different? Yeah. So again, I think for actual COVID-19, how much that really leads to an increase in cerebral venous 
thrombosis is still up for debate. Certainly there are case series. This has been frequently reported. It's probably linked to a higher inflammatory burden, not just one of those asymptomatic mild cases. It's rare. It's not impossible. I certainly do think about it if a patient has COVID and they develop a, a really severe headache. The thing that really got the media's attention was obviously the vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia mm. leading to these rare presentations of kind of unusual places of having thrombosis, including the venous sinuses. This, I just want to like totally emphasize how incredibly rare this is. So despite the fact that it's gotten a lot of media attention, it's not something that you or I are very likely to see. It's been reported with the viral vector vaccine, so namely the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe and then the J&J vaccine here. For the J&J vaccine that we're seeing here, it's probably the, the likelihood that this happens is probably somewhere around one and a half a million. So extremely rare. What's interesting about it, though, is that these patients develop uh, platelet factor four antibodies, which is the same type of antibody that's seen in heparin-induced uh, thrombocytopenia, the autoimmune variant of that. And so it's been treated and looked at in a similar light to heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Again, these patients are usually not treated with heparin. These are patients that are going to be treated with argatroban or bivalirudin that may or may not need some sort of immunotherapy. There's a question of whether or not IVIG needs to be used in these cases. I think that was done more in Europe than it's been done here. But again, we're looking at heparin-induced thrombocytopenia as the, what's the best way to say it, the marker or the, the thought paradigm for how we've been uh, addressing this. And again, super, super rare was found in women, um, younger women at that. And they all had these antibody titers to platelet for uh, platelet factor four. All right. Let's get back to your run of the mill, if that term could even apply to CVT in general, sure. a CVT patient. So now it's been diagnosed through whatever modality picked it up. I guess that brings up the, a question to proceed it. Let's say, for instance, you found this on a non-con CT. At that point, would you just go down to the MRIs? There's no reason if you suspect it to do the CTV because you want all the benefits you mentioned from the MRIs, correct? Correct. Unless the patient's like too unstable to go to MRI. Fair enough. Okay. So now let's say you, you have the diagnosis, you've got an MRIs. How do we treat this? So I think first and foremost, just ask yourself before you start treatment, is this patient who has been exposed to heparin at all? And I think that's normally going to be more likely the cause for patients who are already admitted to the hospital and have had this heparin exposure. But I have seen it diagnosed in a patient who had an outpatient procedure, got some heparin out in the community. And then came in with, so I think before you start treatment, the one thing that's really going to change what you do is whether or not this is heparin induced or, you know, vaccine induced. But again, heparin being the more common thing that we're going to see once the, the COVID error has passed. Okay. So from if, what I'm hearing is correct. If they've mm -hmm. had no exposure to heparin, we're going to use one of the heparin products. If they've had yes. any exposure to heparin, we're better off to err on the safe side with going with some alternative until we have a workup for a hit done. 100%. Absolutely. Okay. I love it. Okay. I, I guess that brings us to the first treatment priority. You're going to anticoagulate these patients in some form. And you're going to do Absolutely. it even if they have signs of hemorrhage on their brain, which like blows people's minds when they hear it. Talk about that. But yeah, this is like we, to make this better, to make the patient stop hemorrhaging, you actually have to give them an anticoagulant which is just, it doesn't make anyone feel comfortable. In fact, it's quite uncomfortable, but that is the treatment. 
and it's full dose. And it's, I know the neuro folks, they don't like to bolus. They don't want it quick. They want slow, yes. but that's not this diagnosis. Right? That's so true. Yes. Yes. We are usually quite squeamish about anticoagulation, but I think this really is the time that patient needs to be anticoagulated and they need to be anticoagulated quickly. And we, we treat them like the PE. We're not even doing the ACS level where it's like lower. We want full maximal anticoagulation as soon as possible in these patients. Yes, 100%. All right, All right fantastic. Now, the next thing to talk about is they have a propensity to see. And so are you routinely and across the board giving seizure prophylaxis? Is there certain patients you do? Is it an ICP-related thing? Talk to me. Yeah, so I think there certainly are no guidelines that say that patients should be on prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs. So we don't routinely start them. What I will say is that for a patient who has any sort of altered mental status, and I'm not getting like, you know, a great bedside exam, I have a very low threshold to put people on continuous EEG monitoring to see whether or not they're in either subclinical status, or if they have subclinical seizures, or if they have one of those kind of tricky patterns that's on the ictal inner ictal continuum. And those patients, I probably will go ahead and start an anti-epileptic drug. All right. That's perfect. How about, you already mentioned numerous times their propensity for increased intracranial pressure, especially if it involves the sinuses. Uh, are you monitoring that? Sticking a, an EBD in doesn't sound like a great idea on their heparin. How do, how do we work up this? Yeah, so I think that is, it is really one of those tricky things. Clinically, we can follow these patients for signs of increased intracranial pressure. So if the patient's having, really progressing to the fact that they're having some Cushing tribe then we have to get really concerned if that patient is all of a sudden bradycardic and they're hypertensive and they've got a very poor mental status. That is someone I'm very worried about. And that is true. It is very uncomfortable to put in an invasive monitor in someone who's fully anticoagulated. So I think this is a good time where we can use some other bedside techniques. So if you have pupillometry or if you're really efficient at doing ultrasonography to look at optic nerve sheath diameter, that's a, this is a really great time to utilize those sort of non-invasive uh, intracranial pressure monitors. But I think at the end of the day, if this is someone you're really worried about and you're proceeding with doing all the things that we do to control intracranial pressure, then it really is like it is appropriate to have an intracranial pressure monitor. And so I've certainly been involved in cases where we did put in a bolt. You hold the anticoagulation at the time that's placed and then for a couple hours after, and then you just, you either scan or you just hope and pray and it doesn't make anyone feel comfortable, but I think that it does give us a lot of information that helps to direct the care of the patient. Right. Same thing with an EBD. You have to do what you have to do, but again, it's something that's going to require more monitoring and those patients are probably going to get scanned frequently. Let's make it even worse for you. They're actually showing signs of hydrocephalus on the scan you just did now. Does that change the risk benefit at that point? Yeah, at that point, if you've got a patient who's developing profound hydrocephalus, I think you do need CSF diversion. And so that could happen for a number of reasons. That could happen because they've got horrible vasogenic edema, they've got an intracranial hemorrhage, they've developed some obstructive pathology. And so I think if you have that, you have to appropriately treat that. And again, it's not comfortable and it's not ideal, but I think you have to do what you have to do in that situation. Last question on treatment. Who gets an intervention? We've had such a dramatic change in the landscape of stroke management for arterial interventions. Are there venous interventions that work or is this an evidence-free zone? Really an evidence-free zone. I think it is very institutional dependent. Everywhere I've practiced, I have never actually taken anyone to like a neurointerventional procedure. 
That is not to say that it's never done. I think it's just there's a hard, high bar to do that. And that's because the two-act trial, which was published in JAMA in 2020, tried to investigate this. Like you said, we had a great success with arterial intervention. The addition of an interventional therapy to medical therapy did not seem to improve functional outcomes. So this trial was actually halted for futility within the first interim analysis. So again, it's not impossible. There are interventional things that can be considered, but I think it's a high bar to do. All right. Last question. So you've gotten them through, you've done your duty and they're, they're making it out of the hospital. They're obviously going to be on anticoagulation. Is it forever? Is it some time limited amount? And which one do you choose? Yeah. So I think a lot of this is going to depend on what you found as the reason that they're having this. So if this is something like it's peripartum and pretty soon they're going to be out of that peripartum risk factor state and they're going to go back to their normal coagulopathic normal state, then I don't think you need anticoagulation for forever versus in someone who has a, a genetic thrombophilia, that person is, is quite different and they are going to need a lot longer term anticoagulation. So again, I think a lot of it depends on what's provoked this venous thrombosis. Most patients are certainly treated for at least three months, probably more like six. And then it's a great question. How do we treat this now? So historically, everyone was on warfarin. That was your long-term maintenance was that unless it was malignancy associated, you would be on warfarin. Recently, now that we have the DOACs that have a better safety profile for intracranial hemorrhage, I think we are transitioning to preferring those. And so there was a trial looking at in terms of its comparison with that was the RESPECT trial. And basically, it showed that they had a very similarly low rate of reoccurrence and similar rates of bleeding. And so I think for most patients, we do share decision-making about what they feel more comfortable being on. Most people I've seen just favor wanting to be on something that's an oral medication that they don't need a lot of monitoring for. But I do think that probably the safer thing is to have a patient on a DOAC, which has a lower rate of intracranial complications. But again, a little bit, not data free. There certainly is data to guide that, but just not a long experience to go by. All right. Is there anything we missed? No, I think that that's really covered everything. This is rare, but it can have a horrible morbidity and mortality if not treated. And one of the things that's so wonderful about this is if you treat it, the patients get better and they can make it out. Now, one thing we actually did not mention is that if you have a patient who really does have an ICP crisis, meaning they are tunded, you are quite concerned, they have elevated ICPs, they are compressing their basal cistern, they have midline shift, even though those patients are going to need anticoagulation, you can take them to decompressive hemicraniectomy. And I think that especially, like if we were nervous about having a bolt or an EVDN, we're really nervous about anticoagulating someone who is fresh out of a decompressive hemicraniectomy. But for, for patients that are going to herniate and die without this, this can be life-saving. And you would think, given how, um, how bad it feels like this is going to go, that the outcomes would be quite terrible. But in fact, you know, in the small studies that have looked at this, these patients actually do quite well because this is being primarily driven by vasogenic edema, which is not cell death. And if you can get them through and get them to the point where they have not herniated and died, then their brain recovers and they can make a really great recovery. Wow. So again, these are really patients that you have to collaboratively collaborate with your neurosurgeons, your hematologists. I think it's what makes these patients so challenging, but also so interesting is it takes really a, a multimodality kind of approach to these and involving your surgeons early if you're really worried about uh, the patient going downhill. 
Fantastic. Perfect place to stop. Can't thank you enough for coming on, Casey. Uh, We'll be hearing more from you in the coming weeks, and hopefully we'll see some great blog posts as well. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I thought that was amazing. Hopefully you did too. Now, just some things we got into that uh, got left on the editing room floor. Uh, We didn't go over the actual radiology findings on both non-contrasted and contrasted studies in any great detail, just in the interest of time. And I think most of the time I'd be relying on my radiology colleagues for this diagnosis. But if you want to hear more about that stuff, then go to the IBCC chapter linked in the show notes. The other thing we spoke about is, is CVT on a spectrum with pseudotumor cerebri, now known as idiopathic intracranial hypertension? And uh, the literature goes back and forth on whether these are uh, diseases in the same family or not. And uh, what we do know is the patient population seems to be overlapping. Uh, So that's interesting. Uh, And definitively, one of the things Casey says is if you have a patient, you're working up for IIH, uh, they need to have CVT excluded. Otherwise, it wouldn't be idiopathic. It would be actually a misdiagnosis. And then the other thing which I found was super cool is a lot of times when you have a patient, you were working up for IIH, and then you image them. Uh, you might find, oh, look, there's transverse sinus occlusion. It must actually be CVT, but that's actually a misreading. The pressure from the IIH actually will occlude the transverse sinus without clot. And unless the radiologists are super experienced with this, they might diagnose an IIH patient as CVT, even though they don't actually have a clot in that sinus. So there you go. Um, I guess that's where we'll wrap it up. Scott Weingart, MCRIT Podcast, saying bye-bye.